Our Advent series for this year is called Fear Not. And apparently that is a rather relevant idea because uh, some research was just done, a survey was just done, national survey, and 37% of the people who took this survey, that's over one-third, 37%, said that they experienced more anxiety in 2023 than they did the year before. Maybe you're not one of those 37%. Maybe this year was just like sunshine and rainbows and kittens and, wait, no, that would be bad. Puppies, there you go. Maybe it was a perfect year. And so if this was a perfect year, maybe this morning's talk might feel like it doesn't resonate with what this year has been for you. If there's been no disappointment, if everything went exactly like you'd hoped, then that's awesome. Kudos to you. For all the rest of us in the room, uh, I hope that this morning's text uh, can, can resonate. Here's the thing. I think as we're getting close to a new year, we start thinking, kind of looking backwards at the last year. And maybe you came into 2023 saying, man, uh, I've got the best worded New Year's resolutions I've ever had. I've got the perfect list, right? Maybe you were like knocking on wood and you had a rabbit's foot and you had fingers crossed and you were manifesting, right? Like maybe you're just like all in, this is going to be the year. And I doubt any of us would say that this year has looked exactly like we planned, even if it's been a good year. And some of you are like, no, it's way not like I'd planned. What do we do with that? What do we do in the waiting? What do we do in the disappointment? Because what happens is fear sneaks into our disappointment. Fear sneaks into our disappointment and says, this is the end of the story. Right? Fear becomes disappointment when we forget that we follow the Savior who raised from the dead. Like when we forget that death was arrested, by the way, that's why it's good that we sing these songs. That's why it's... Like we're like encouraging you to participate with us. Like we're not standing there as spectators listening to people say those songs, right? That we together are reminding our hearts that if death has been defeated, there's no endings, right? That this season, even if it has death itself in it, can't be the end of our story. We follow the resurrected Savior. Fear calls the temporary permanent. Like it just sneaks in there and goes, man, the, the waiting and the disappointment and the struggle, it's never going to get any better. That's the language of fear. Fear calls the temporary permanent. The resurrected Savior calls the temporary temporary. <laughs> right? This idea of waiting, though, is really not new to us. This idea of when are things going to get better, this isn't where I thought things would be. Sometimes we think that's a unique story to us. And listen, what you're walking through is uniquely your journey and it is uniquely your story. But maybe it's just not as unique as we think it is. When we go back to the, the beginning of this whole thing called life, this whole thing called humanity, we go back to Genesis and the repeated language of Genesis is that God saw that it was very good. And the fact is that's underselling it. It wasn't just very good. It was perfectly good. And in the midst of that perfection, something came in that corrupted it. And it didn't come in from like an abstract source. Like as humankind, we chose to reject God. And it's not popular to talk about the idea of sin anymore. That, that's not how you like sell books or get clicks. But the reality is we chose to rebel against God and sin entered the world. 
Because of that, everything's broken. Nothing's the way that it should be. You ever walk through a difficult time and you have this thing like kind of screaming inside of you that you're like, I just don't think this is how it was supposed to be. You're right. Like as the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we were created for garden perfection, not brokenness, not disappointment. And here's the thing, like we can throw Adam and Eve under the bus, be like, I can't believe they did this to us. I am convinced if I'd have been there, I'd have done the same thing. I might would have pushed Eve out of the way and eaten first. Like I know my flesh and my rebellion against I want to be in charge. If you, if you want me to do something, tell me not to do it. I, I'm a, I am a sinner. I don't know that I'd have done any different. And so the reality is because of sin, there's now an effect of sin. It's called the curse. The curse fell upon, and by the way, this is not the point of this morning's talk, and I'm not trying to be political or offensive, but the reality is if you read Genesis chapter 3, there's a specific curse for men, and there's a specific curse for women, because the God who designed us believed there's a difference between the two genders and a distinction in them. And then he calls a curse on the serpent, the tempter, right? And in that we see not just what life looks like for him, but we get the first glimpse of what life might look like for us. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, he speaks this curse over the serpent. I will put enmity, conflict, right? Think of the word enemy. You're going to be at war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, who's he? This certain offspring that would come from the woman shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, right? And we've talked about this before. How, how does bruising something's head bruise someone's heel? Well, because somebody's going to get crushed, right? It's coming. Now, I'm going to teach you a word this morning that you may or may not know. You might not have it in your vocabulary, but you can leave here a little smarter than you walked in if you hear this word. Scholars call this the proto-evangelion. Do you feel smarter? Right? You can even, like, put that on Facebook and be like, hey, did you guys know that the proto-evangelion is found in Genesis 3.15? You use that at your family reunion. I'm sure they'll be really impressed with the church person who says words they can't pronounce, right? Proto-evangelion, proto-first, evangelion, gospel. This is the first gospel. This is the first whispers of future hope. Here's what's in Genesis chapter 13. I want you to hang on this because... You're like, what does this have to do with the Christmas story? Everything. There's no need for a Christmas story without this. Because what this tells us is that sin has a curse and sin has a cure. <laughs> Listen, and if we want one reality with ignoring the other, we're just going to end up confused. Listen, if, if we only think sin has a curse, we'll be despaired. If we only pay attention to the cure, we'll be blindsided by the brokenness of life. There is both a curse and a cure. And so here's the language of Genesis 3:15 and here's why this matters for today. Cuz what's being whispered in this curse is this. A savior is coming. A savior is coming. <laughs> Come on now. Listen, a sa- that's the language of advent. Advent just means coming or arriving or on its way. And what we do during the season of Advent, if this breaks your heart, I apologize in advance. Jesus was not born on December 25th. We don't know when Jesus was born. But we kind of know for sure it wasn't December 25th. It was actually probably closer to when we celebrate Easter. 
Regardless, it's not the idea of we think this was his, like, on his birth certificate birthday. There weren't birth certificates either. It's that we have this season where we celebrate the waiting for a coming Savior. And we both remember that waiting and remind ourselves that we're still waiting for his second advent. So this language of waiting for a Savior to come for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the garden, there was a lot of disappointment. There was a whole lot of waiting. There were people begging God to send the Savior in their generation, and he didn't yet. So the Christmas story understands what it is to be disappointed. In that context, I encourage you to grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please let that be our uh, gift to you. Maybe we get to be the first person to give you a Christmas gift. Keep that. Uh, we'd love for you to, to have that. We have a tradition here. We hold up our Bibles and say a creed together before we jump in. And so if that's where you are on your spiritual journey, then please join with us as we hold up our Bibles and say this with some conviction this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 1. It's page 803. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Luke chapter 1. This series called Fear Not is going to focus for the next four weeks on the appearance of an angel. And the first thing that these angels are going to say is, fear not, or don't be afraid. Fear not's the good King James language for those of us who heard the Christmas story uh, originally in the King James. It's the language of not being afraid. Last week there was no angel and there was no fear not. Last week there was only fear. If, if you didn't track with us last week, you can go on our YouTube channel and, and catch up with us last week. We kind of now get into the rhythm of the Christmas story in Luke's gospel. We're just going to start in verse number 5 this morning. In the days of Herod, that's Herod the Great, that's who we talked about last week, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Their names matter. We're going to talk about their names more in just a minute. But it's Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is not the same Zechariah that is a prophet. This is, uh, that guy lived a long time before then. I want you to listen to their description of their character and the description of their situation in verses 6 and 7. They were both righteous before God. Now don't, don't get confused by that. That doesn't mean sinless before God. Matter of fact, we can't turn the page without him uh, not responding well in a moment and receiving punishment for it. So I'm not calling them sinlessly perfect because there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. This just means they are living rightly to what I believe is the best of their capacity. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Wow, that's really high praise, right? The reason that's important is it gives us the context for the but. 
but they had no child. Elizabeth was barren. And I love how the Bible says this. Both were advanced in years. So diplomatic, right? They were old. We do not know how old. Um, It would be a different context that they did not live to be as old as we do today. Uh, So whatever picture you have of elderly may or may not be quite right. But they're old enough that they probably are losing hope if if they haven't already. Here's why that's so important to me. They are walking in righteousness and in disappointment. They are walking blamelessly and still waiting on God and wondering why he won't answer. That's just so important because that just confronts the American gospel, the the prosperity gospel, that we somehow think, God, I'm doing right. Why won't you answer my prayers? As though this is a transactional thing. It's not how this works. And it's hard for us to understand the significance of barrenness. Maybe we just feel bad for them. It's worse than that in this cultural context. In this cultural context, if you did not have a child, it was considered like among the community publicly, that God was disappointed in you. You were under the disfavor of God. Or God was all on punishing you by withholding children from you. As a matter of fact, even in the conservative tradition at this time, there were rabbis who taught that if you found out that your wife was barren, that was grounds for divorce. Your whole value and identity and relationship with God was defined inappropriately by your fruitfulness here. Or in their case, in their barrenness. And I just wonder sometimes when God says, wait, do we think that we're living in his dishonor? His disfavor? His disappointment or his judgment? And here's the thing. The scriptures teach us a loving father chastises his children. It it might be a season of correction. Or it might just be that he's better at keeping time than us. If you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to write this down or maybe take a picture of this. Success is not God's endorsement of us. And struggle is not God's indictment of us. There are plenty of us who've had really successful moments and seasons in life where we weren't actually all that close to the Lord. And then there's a lot of us who've had seasons of struggle where we felt like we were walking rightly. Do you know why there's seasons of struggle? Because of Genesis chapter 3. Because we are broken people doing life with broken people in a broken world. We struggle because there's such a thing as sin. And maybe you feel like the disappointments of 2023 is because God is picking on you. And I would just lovingly tell you this morning, maybe we're not that big a deal. (laughs) Maybe the, the chessboard of the universe is not actually out to get us. Maybe it's just that we live in a broken world. And for many of us, the reason I think it's important to have this conversation this time of year, and this isn't true for everyone, for some... The holidays are actually a harder time of year, not a more joyful time of year. For some, the Christmas lights just shine a light on that empty table, that empty seat at the table. 
that empty spot at the table, that empty spot in the living room. For many, Christmas is more disappointing than delightful. More mayhem than magical. More fearful than festive. And more painful than peaceful. And if that's your story, I just want you to know we see you. And I think Elizabeth and Zachariah would understand that. Back to the story, verse number 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And here we go. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled, and I would have been too. This is the same word troubled from last week. That can also mean terrified, right? We're going to find out this is Gabriel. So it's not just an angel. That would be terrifying. This is like a Mac Daddy angel, right? Everybody over 40 was like, he said Mac Daddy. I'm down for that. This angel was too legit (laughs) to quit. And you young people don't even know how profound that is. Okay. So he was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Appropriate response. But the angel said to him, Fear not. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. That's weird. I told you names are an important part of the story. We'll talk about more about this name John in a minute. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. He'll be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We'll talk about this a little bit next week. He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Wow, that's quite a pronouncement. In in this angelic fear not moment, there's a couple truths that I think we can sink our teeth into if we're walking through some disappointment or a season of waiting this morning. I want us to notice them from the text, and then we're going to transition this morning. Here's the first thing. In the waiting, in the waiting, let's trust God's timing. Let's trust the accuracy, perfection, glory, holiness, and on-time timing of our God. In verse number 8, I love that it starts with the word now. (laughs) The Apostle Paul would talk about that now. That was actually the focus of Advent last year, if you remember. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Why Now, because that was the perfect time, that's why. Not before, not later, now. Man, that word matters. God is always on time. I got to tell you, I almost never am when it comes to him. I tend to be on time with my appointments with you, but when I'm asking God to do something, I just can't tell you how seldom my time matches him. 
His is always slower. And every now and then it's faster. But it's almost never my time. But it's always on time. Here's what I love about their names. Before I tell you this, let me give some context in case you didn't know. In a Jewish tradition, names were handed down with incredible meaning. It wasn't, nobody Googled hipster names for 2023. That's what we're naming our baby. No, these these names had deep and important meaning, and it was taught to the child the importance of their names. And let me just tell you, they've got some amazing names. The name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. The Lord remembers. He can't forget. It says he forgets our sin, but he tells us about it. So even he remembers. That's a good name. And then he marries someone named El, Elizabeth, which means God of promise. Or maybe like God promise. Or like God oath, God covenant. That's an awesome name. We would add of because that just doesn't resonate super well. That's a killer name. And these two people marry each other and form a new household. The two become one. Like literally together their names mean the God of promise remembers. (laughs) What an incredible banner to be over a home that's been waiting for decades for God to answer prayer. Right? That's getting up every day a little disappointed that their situation isn't changing as quickly as they wish their situation would change. And they can't call each other from the back of the house. Hey, the Lord remembers. Can you bring my coffee? <laughs> On my way, God oath. Not that she was calling him God. Just to clarify, I'm not encouraging wives to call their husbands God. Okay. Um, every time they're speaking this, how, how beautiful is this? Dozens and dozens of times throughout the Old Testament, there's this language from both prophets and psalmists where the question is asked, not actually expecting an answer, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And I just can't help but think if Zechariah was ever reading from those psalms. Or reading from those prophecies, like how close to his heart did those words fall off his tongue? How long, oh Lord, until you give us a child? Maybe that resonates with your heart today. Or maybe for you today it's how long, oh Lord, until this marriage is life-giving like I've asked for you to give us. How long, O Lord, until we are restored with our child? How long, O Lord, until my body is healed? How long, O Lord, until this job makes any sense? How long, O Lord, until we can actually pay our bills? How long, O Lord, until we can get out of debt? How long, O Lord, until that friendship is reconciled? How long, O oh Lord? And here's the answer. At the perfect time. That's the answer for every single one of us, for every struggle we walked in here, for every disappointment, for every moment of waiting, for every seemingly unanswered prayer. How long, O oh Lord, when he says so? 
in the waiting, let's trust in the timing of God. Well, what do we do while we're trusting that? Number two, in the waiting, let's keep showing up. Just keep showing up. I love in verse 8 that it says, now, when he was just fulfilling his duty. He's just doing the next right thing. He's been doing that for decades. Just doing the next right thing. Just keep showing up. Believing if God's timing is perfect, then we're just going to get up tomorrow and we're going to do this. Some of you are going to travel with little kids this holiday season. And as somebody whose kids are just growing up so, so quickly, I just want to say, I'm sorry. And you're going to hear over and over again, are we there yet? And here's the thing, in the waiting, in the disappointment, that's what our hearts are screaming, like an angry toddler in the back seat. Are we seriously not there yet? But when the answer's no, what do you do? You just keep going. You just keep heading the right direction. If we're not there yet, we don't pull over to the side of the road and get out of the car. We're not going to get there any quicker. Let's just keep going. Let's do the next right thing. So I want you to think about this. If Let's pretend that Elizabeth was 20 years old when they got married. She probably was much younger than that. But let's just pretend she was 20 because that's a round number and I'm bad at math. And let's pretend that this season of the story that she's 60, which is probably actually pretty close to our best guess. 40 years with a 360-day Jewish calendar, that's 14,400 days of are we there yet. For 14,400 days, they got up and heard no. And he just fulfilled his duty. Just did the next right thing. For 14,400 no's, they did the next right thing. I've talked before, I love Eugene Peterson's definition of being a follower of Jesus. He calls discipleship a long obedience in the same direction. Are we there yet? Nope, just keep going. And, and I said this about a year ago. I, I preached on faithfulness, and it's just been fresh on my mind again lately. I just think the most underestimated, undervalued, underhyped character trait of humankind is faithfulness today. It might not be celebrity. It might not be awesome. But, man, just being faithful, just doing the next right thing. In the waiting, trust God's perfect timing. Just keep showing up. What else would we do? In the waiting, trust God's perfect timing. In the waiting, keep showing up. And in the waiting, keep praying. Keep asking. Verse 13, the angel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Guess what? So has yours. God can't help but not hear your prayers. That's who he is. It's not a thing he does. It's part of his nature. In our Daniel series, we talked about how he's reading from the scroll of Jeremiah the prophet and reads that the exile is only going to last 70 years. And if we're right in the timeline and it's year 69, J.D. Greer said, don't quit praying in year 69, right? Just keep praying. 
If it's been 14,400 days, just keep praying because he does hear. The fact that he has either said not yet or my yes is going to be different than your request doesn't mean he didn't hear you. He's not ignoring you. We believe in a God who hears and responds to the prayers of his people. So keep on praying. Keep on praying. He hears you. And I don't know who needs to hear this today. But I believe God wants me to say this to you. God's delay is not God's denial. And and, and even as I said that, I struggled writing that sentence. I deleted it and rewrote it and wrote it. Because here's the thing. There's actually no such thing as a delay with God. It just feels like a delay. (laughs) Maybe I should have said God's seemingly, feelingly delay. God doesn't deny his kids. Now, he's too good to not say the best yes. So it might feel like a no. And often it's a wait. But he, he hasn't forgotten you. He's not ignoring you. If his timing is perfect, I trust his heart, and I'm just getting up the next day doing the right thing, I'm going to keep on asking until he either gives me what I've asked for or gives me something better. In the waiting, in the disappointment, just keep on praying. Fear not, your your prayer has been heard. The last two observations from the text are sort of the summary statements. It's kind of the bow on the, the Christmas gift here for this morning that I'm hoping somebody's going to remember as we leave here today. In the waiting, keep holding on to hope. Keep holding on to hope. In the next verse, this is what the angel says. You will have joy and gladness. And again, maybe this year has rocked for you. Maybe you're in a sweet spot right now. Awesome. To all the rest of you, I just want to tell you, I believe with everything in my soul, joy and gladness are coming. Joy and gladness are coming. I believe it with everything in me. I won't get up here. If I don't believe that anymore, I believe with everything in me, joy and gladness are coming. It might not come tomorrow. It might not come in the way you wish. It might not come until the next life. But with everything in my soul, I believe joy and gladness are yours. They're on the way. Keep holding on to hope. Hope is this future belief, this future Joy is coming. Mark Batterson talked about this text and he used this phrase. He said, hope is risky business. And then he said something that I sort of stole and edited a a phrase from him to kind of make it my own. But I'd encourage you to write this down. Hope is exchanging the fear of the unknown for faith in the unseen. Instead of walking in fear of the unknown, because by the way, there's a whole lot of unknown. The older we get, the more we realize how unknown life is, right? Can I get a witness? Anybody? Right? Man, I wish I knew as much now as I knew my freshman year of Bible college. I I knew it all, man. There's a whole lot of unknown. 
But I believe in the unseen God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sits on the throne of the heavens and does whatever he pleases. I want to have my faith rooted in him. I want my faith holding on to his unseen hand. I can either live in fear of the unknown or faith in the unseen. And I'm just telling you, in the waiting and in the disappointment, life's only found in one of those two realities. It's walking in faith in the unseen God. Holding on to hope. What do we do when God seems distant? Or when God seems absent? Or when God won't give us our yes yet? Keep holding on to hope. Joy and gladness is yours. So in the waiting, trust in God's perfect timing. In the waiting, keep showing up. In the waiting, keep on praying. And in the waiting, keep holding on to hope. And in the waiting... Keep handing out hope. Because the rest of that announcement, I want you to see this. You will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. Like the, the economy of hope is trickle-down economics. That God is going to fulfill our joy, fulfill our gladness, so that many other people experience it as well. That's how it works. So if you're not familiar with this story in the, in the birth of John the Baptist, I'll give you a quick summary, although I encourage you to read. It's a long chapter, but read all of Luke chapter 1 on your own time with the Lord this week. What happens after Gabriel finishes talking, we stop reading there, is that Zechariah just makes sure Gabriel knows how to do math. Do you know how old I am? He just questions his age. And it doesn't even sound like he questions rebelliously. And Gabriel is like, I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you. See, what we believe happens, all those, go back to Genesis chapter 3. A Savior is coming. Another prophet raises up. A Savior is coming. Another prophet comes along. A Savior is coming. A judge rises up. A Savior is coming. King rises up. A Savior is coming. This announcement keeps coming. God keeps showing up. Angels of the Lord keep showing up. A Savior is coming. And then for 400 years... We have no record of any word from the Lord. For 400 years, there's no visual or audible, recorded remembrance that a Savior is coming. This is the first time in 400 years, like way older than the country of the United States of America, there's been nothing. And he shows up to Zechariah and speaks to him and he's like, I don't know. And man, I'm the same way. I can be such a skeptic. But God, not my situation. Zachariah says, because you didn't trust me, you're not going to be able to speak until the baby is born. And the text says that he went home to Elizabeth and she conceived. I do a lot of marriage counseling. If you go home and don't speak to your wife, do not think that any conception is going to be taking place. I just want to make that super clear. But because God's word is true, unless an angel visits you, 
I, I encourage communication. Uh, anyways, um, next week we'll, we'll look at some of the experiences during that pregnancy. But when the time comes for Elizabeth to give birth, the baby is born and they ask her what to name the, the baby. And she obediently says, John. And they're all confused because in good Jewish tradition, you don't give a child a non-family name. To give you context, that would be like you have your first child and you don't give him your last name. We would think, do you not want this kid? Like, do you want people to know that this kid's yours? Like, this was offensive and confusing. John's not a family name. So they go to Zechariah and say, Elizabeth... She just wants to name this kid John. That's not what you want, right? He calls for a tablet and writes down his name is John. By the way, not will be John, should be John. I just think that's cool. He's like, no, no, no. This kid was named before he was a fetus. It's awesome. That's how purposeful God is about life before it ever enters the womb. His name's John. As soon as he writes that down on the tablet, I want you to see what the text says. Look over towards the end of chapter 1, verse number 64. Immediately, his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. The first time he had a a chance to speak, he gave glory to God. And fear came on all their neighbors. This is the healthy kind of fears. The idea of awe, amazement. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them, I love this language, laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then again, I encourage you to read this whole prophecy of Zechariah in in your own quiet time this week, your own Advent study. We're just going to look at the very beginning because it's the summary. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us. God has come down. Redemption has come down. Salvation has come down. Blessed be God. The first time he had a chance to speak, everybody in that region got a taste of the hope that he had been clinging to. And that's how it's supposed to work. The way it's supposed to work is that as we're holding on to hope, trusting God's perfect timing, and we're holding on to hope just by doing the next right thing, and we're holding on to hope by continuing to pray, and we're just taking the next step, and the next step of obedience, I think that's the most contagious virus that's ever spread. Hope is contagious. People watch them faithfully serve the Lord in the struggle, in the disappointment, in the waiting. Yesterday morning, uh, the ladies of Temple had a cookie exchange. Um, shout out to Nina Quijano. She's done a great job uh, taking leadership with our ladies of Temple. Shout out to Sam, who's doing an awesome job with our Temple men. 
Nina wasn't even able to be there yesterday, so shout out to Hannah for taking the reins with the cookie exchange. I'm really grateful for the cookie exchange. I did not attend, but I sure did reap the benefits. Any other men in the house of the Lord who are grateful that there was a cookie exchange yesterday? Yes, sir. Yeah, I might not have attended, but my scale will show otherwise. That's how hope's supposed to work. I think tomorrow at your workplace, there's somebody who didn't come to the hope exchange today who needs an overflow. I think that's how that's supposed to work. (laughs) I, I think there's people in your family who don't know the Lord. But maybe at a family reunion, they're just going to be around you. And I don't mean that you're going to preach a sermon to them. Or since you're the churchgoer, they ask you to say grace and you preach a sermon and pretend like it's a prayer. That's not what I mean. Don't do that. I mean just that you'd keep showing up. With contagious hope driving the next right thing. And just maybe the hill country around you would be like, what's up with them? That's how this works. We celebrated this morning our Temple Kids volunteers. I'm just telling you, you might think I'm weird or like too literal or whatever. Like I, I just actually believe that when people who are full of the Spirit of God hold an infant in their arms, that child experiences the presence of God. I believe that's how it works. I believe hope's contagious even when we don't recognize it or realize it. There are people in your orbit that just desperately need to borrow your hope. If you're really holding on to hope, hand it out to somebody who needs it. That's how this works. The message of Advent is that hope visits us in our disappointment, in our waiting. At just the right time. Perfect love casts out fear. One of the things that perfect love does is it refuels our hope to keep moving forward. Maybe today you are full of hope this morning. I want to say this. I didn't plan on saying this this morning during... During our our time of music this morning, I I thought of this. The reason this moment matters to us is because you have no idea where the hope meter might be on the person to your right or your left. It might just be in the basement. And what they need is just to stand next to somebody who sings like they believe the lyrics. We encourage you guys to engage in worship, like express what's going on in your heart in worship even when it's uncomfortable because it's not actually about us because just maybe somebody needs to see that somebody else believes this, not just the people on the stage. Like that we would create an epidemic of hope in this place that can't help but spill out to where we go next. And if you walked in here today and you feel kind of isolated, you don't feel like you're close enough to catch hope from somebody, I'm just begging you, please reach out to us. I promise you I got enough hope for you to borrow because I've seen his timing be so perfect in my life I've seen him show up at just the right time I've seen his no be a better yes so often and I'm so convinced that you can just borrow some of my hope today And I think there's a lot of other people in the room who would say the same thing if you would just let us in. 
and maybe we can do a cookie exchange as well.